career sucks. Sex just isn't the same. What's my purpose? Where did this fat come from? Divorce is killing me. I'll never be happy. My debt is piling up. Kids are gone. Now what? I'll never find love. Why can't I be like the other guys? Hey guys, gay, straight, and everything in between. It's time to get a grip. Stop whining, make a bold move, and do something amazing with your 40 plus life. Let's get to the show with your Tell It Like It Is host, Rick Clemens, who does his best to never act like a dick, unless you act like one first. Hey guys, it's time once again for 40 plus Real Men Real Talk, where we go to the places, well, sometimes where guys don't talk about stuff, we talk about the things we really should be talking about, and sometimes we even go some places that we go, oh, I didn't know that guys did that sort of stuff, so... Today's guest is somebody that through a lot of interesting connections where the universe just brings you together, um, we know a few of the same people and because of it getting introduced by one person, I got to know another person, then I got to know this person and lo and behold, full circle, suddenly John Giswold comes into my world. He is a guy who's been involved in the fitness and lifestyle industry for years and years and years. I don't want to make him sound old, but he is. Been doing this stuff for a long, long time, and he's very well known. He has a couple of books out, Basic Training and Beyond Basic Training. And I'm going to leave the mystery thing that he does for our conversation. But John is just a really cool guy that I've gotten to know through his Instagram and through some other friends. He lives in New York City, and he's a very highly sought-after gym designer and consultant. So, John, welcome to the show. I know it's a hot, human day in New York, and we're recording this in summer, and it's going to air in October, so by then it'll be nice and cool. But um, thanks for being here, man. I'm really glad you took time to be with me. I'm really glad to be here, Rick. I, I, I'm pleased. I'm really flattered to be invited in, and I know our, our mutual friend, uh, Petra Kolber. Yeah. Kind of the, the the mechanics between us. Absolutely, absolutely. She's a lovely gal. I've had her on my other podcast, and um, we're good friends from the speaking world and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so let's kind of just you know talk a little bit about this whole fitness industry, where you came from, and you know why it's still such a passion of yours as you're a forty plus guy. Because I think it's really important to showcase some guys who are like, yeah, I'm still doing that thing that I've been passionate about. But then there's also a twist that we'll talk about too. So when did you really get involved in the fitness industry? I'm just curious. Well, I had a, a, a very you know, lucrative career in fashion. I had my own menswear collection uh, in 1985, 86. Uh, and in 1987, the stock market crashed. Yep. I was selling to Bergdorf Goodman and I, was, I had my own small collection that was selling nationally. And this, the stock market fell through the floor, and I found myself trying to heal from losing about $200,000 at that time. Mm. And I ran into a woman named Molly Fox, who tapped me on the shoulder one day, asked me into her studio for coffee, and uh, changed my life. She introduced me to the fitness world and into mm. her studio. And I walked into her studio in 19... 87 and I've been there ever since I've been in Molly's back pocket is my best friend but she introduced me to the fitness world at that yeah. time so guys here's the interesting connection so Molly <laughs> and her sister Katie Katie is a friend of mine who I met through a series of different things and then suddenly 
she starts talking about her friend Molly and then Petra is a good friend of both John and Molly's. And so this is why the universe is such a beautiful thing. It just connects people from all over. So, mm -hmm. um, so you walk in, you get involved in the fitness industry. And I think the question that, you know, I tried not to do a whole lot of research cause I knew a lot about you just through things, but so what was that first, first fitness thing you did? Was it, you know, was it aerobics? Was it, you know, it, what was the thing? I know you've got the boot camp stuff, but where well, did John really do it? was that um, we were doing low impact aerobics at Molly Fox Studios and then someone came into our studio with a step. Uh, they gave 50 steps to Molly Fox, 50 steps to Jeff Martin here in New York and mm. 50 steps to Karen Void in Los Angeles and said, we step up and down on this platform right. and you're gonna start teaching this in three days. Wow. And so we were given <laughs> three days to prepare a formula that was basically step up and down, put five pound hand weights in your hands and we'll figure it out from there. <laughs> wow. And so and that was did. really the beginning of step. It was, it was actually the beginning of step. Wow. And we, we, you know, that Monday we took on, I took on three classes a week. They were jammed from the minute we started. And then Molly Fox was going to be doing a, um, a, a press tour with, for the step com or the Reebok step company at that time right. and invited the national press into a, um, a, a hotel here in New York. Everybody from idea, all the national press were there, TV magazines, yep. newspapers. And then that the night before Molly got pneumonia and she was in the emergency room and turned to me and said, John, you're going to have to do this for me because you were my backup guy anyway you're going to have to do this. Right. So I stepped on uh, the stage in front of the national step as a new formula for exercise. And I worked for 10 years nonstop teaching step aerobics around the world. That's I went on amazing. like a 10 year travel plan. That is so amazing. So here's my little connection to step. And this is, <laughs> I, ha I haven't thought about this in a long time until you just brought it up actually. So in 1980, okay. So when did you really start this? Give me the time frame. 1989. Okay. 1989. So 1982, I started college and I was kind of this little rebel. I went to a seventh day Adventist college and I was like, so over just like going to church school. I'd been in church school all my life and I hope my parents aren't listening to this because they'd be like, oh, here he goes again. But um, I get on campus and I get involved in the theater. Now, Seventh-day Adventist theater is a little bit different than other theater. We can only do certain kind of productions and all this stuff. And the least little bit that looks like any kind of dance, we can't do it, right? So we start doing these rehearsals. And at the time, I was starting to get involved in just pretty much basic aerobic stuff. Like, okay, let's do some kind of aerobics, right? And I remember sneaking into an old gymnasium on campus with my theater people and going, we're gonna do this thing called aerobics. I don't know what it's gonna look like when I do it with you, but I was taking, I was sneaking off campus to actually take dance. And first time I was doing dance, I mean, I'm, you know, 18 years old starting to quote my dance career, so to speak, is in my own mind. But in this little gym on campus that nobody ever really used, they thought we were over there rehearsing for our play and stuff. I just would pop some music in, which again was so against the rules to have the kind of music I was playing. It was like dirty dancing all over again, so to speak. And I was leading like these musical aerobics classes. And then here we go. A few years later, here comes a step thing. I'm like, somebody must have been hearing this stuff in my head. 
when I was doing this. So, uh, but you know, it's so interesting to hear these stories and, and to find out where this all, you know, came along for you. And then now this has just been a blossoming career ever since. It's yeah. something you've never really left. I think it was, I think the, 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 I started out at the Molly Fox studios and that was like starting out on the top of Kilimanjaro. You know, mm -hmm. I started in the top studio in New York and I, I got impeccable training from her teaching staff and Molly gave me such a great piece of advice. She said, I want you to take as many classes as you want. We won't charge mm -hmm. you. And I want you to take little pieces of, of each person's personality that fits you, that actually speaks to you and you'll mm -hmm. put your, the puzzle of who you will be uh, in front of a group together. So just find what makes you feel comfortable, how you communicate, how you move, and then put an audition together, which I did. Mm -hmm. And I had to audition for her, her team, not for Molly, because we were too close. Right. And I did that, and I, and I did really well. I, mm -hmm. I did very well for her studio, and I was with her for seven years, uh, working for them exclusively. You know, as you were saying that, I got really taken out of it a little bit, because I'm like, this is such a beautiful thing of what she gave you, this gift of, take the classes, learn what you can, bring a little piece of the puzzle of everybody to it, but be yourself yeah. and create your own thing. And I, I wish more people, and I'm going to specifically talk to the guys now. Mm -hmm. Guys, if you're in a leadership position, I want you to think about what Molly told John. Because I think so many of us that have been in leadership positions, being managers, directors, CEOs, whatever, if you could adapt what Molly just said into any advice you give anybody on your team, I want you to do lots of different things and I want you to be successful, but I want you to take from all these different things that you learn from other people and learn it, but then put your own little twist on it. I think so many more people would be so much more successful if they had that kind of leadership and they shared those sort of things because you and I both know what makes a really good fitness instructor because I used to teach spin. I told John this before we came on the air. I taught spin class for about 12 years. And what made me highly successful was I had my own little spin to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I brought my own personality to it. And I think this is something that makes everybody successful in the world when they find the way to do their own version of what they're doing. And I know this carries forward in everything you do in your consulting work and everything else. You bring your personality to it, correct? Oh, absolutely. But I, Molly gave me a, a license to allow myself to um, admire someone else, to find out what their strengths were so that I could apply my own version of those strengths that really mm -hmm. were inside of me all, all along. Right. You can't falsely pull something forward and copy somebody all you can do is really identify with what they do and and see how they do it and then have that imprint become your own so yeah. i uh, i do that I've, I've been able to do that through my gym business as well because it was something no one was doing until i uh, i kind of made it up as i went along mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i was working with a developer here in new york one of the top developers in new york actually one of molly fox's instructors was taking leave and he said, could you kind of take over training with this client of mine, which I did. Mm -hmm. And I stepped into his gym and I said, you know, your gym here on 60th Street and 9th Avenue is fine, but you could actually make it better if you did A and B. So he said, well, here's a phone number. Call this guy and tell him to change A and B. Right. And I did. 
<clears throat> and I've been working with that developer for now 26 years, building gyms for him because I'm, uh, I come to it with a fitness mind. So I design a gym that's efficient. It's not pretty mm-hmm. it now, but it's efficient. It's, it's set up by somebody who wants the gym to work for people versus a pretty gym that looks good in a piece of marketing material. But isn't that interesting that you want to do the functional piece and then you put, you kind of put the wrapper on it from there. I think sometimes people work the other way. Well, what's going to make this look really good? And then now let's figure out how to make the functional piece work. And that doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. In fact, I work with a lot of speakers right now in another company that I work for. And they, you know, it's, (laughs) it's kind of been interesting in the last few weeks because we have like certain milestones that you meet versus like, okay, identify your target audience, who you're going to talk to, what you're going to talk about, you know, you get your positioning, then you start thinking about what your assets will look like, like what's your demo video going to be, what's your website going to be, get that all kind of ready so that you can get ready to start doing the outreach and everything. And this is a self-guided program. I jump in from time to time. I mean, I'm in there so through the program with them doing some coaching at certain milestones. Right. And I can't tell you how many people immediately go, okay, well, I'm going to go jump to the website and the demo video thing and get that done first. I'm like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Because what good is it to do that when you're not even, they think they're solid. And some of them, a few of them are solid on, okay, they know who they are. They know who they, what they want to speak on. They know who they're speaking to. But it's the same concept. And I think so much of this follows us through life when we go, but I want to do the fun, pretty stuff first. Well, we all do. We all do. But it takes work, which I think is an interesting segue to another piece of your life that it takes a lot of work to do this other thing you're doing in life before it becomes this beautiful work of art. Mm-hmm. And it also is something that most guys would go, really? <laughs> you're a guy and you do this? <laughs> I, can, I can just attest, guys. I'm going to let him tell, but I have seen some of what we're about to talk about in his Instagram photos and stuff. And I'm just like, I'm blown away because the work and the product is beautiful, but let's kind of inch into that, John. So what is this mystery thing topic we're talking about here? Into that. Well, you know, I'm a knitter. I knit and I crochet, but mm-hmm. I primarily knit and I've been knitting for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I did it kind of in the quiet of my home secretively almost there was a bit of shame around it for some reason but my mother taught me when i was 10 years old and then actually during an injury when i was uh teaching way too much aerobics and step classes i twisted my ankle and i had to lay up for a couple of weeks and i picked up a crochet hook again and brought it back into my life and i've been kind of working at it ever since it was all done for vanity pieces for friends and i would make gifts and scarves and stuff like that. But then I started making these beautiful, very expensive, uh, fine merino wool blankets. Cool. And they are cool. They're warm, but (laughs) but, but they're they're like a gravity blanket. They're not Uh super hot because they're really beautiful merino wool. And I would, a friend of mine knew that I had one on my sofa in my apartment here Mm -hmm. in a craft show that he was launching up in Hudson Valley. Very uh, artisanal, uh, woodworking, ironworking, um, weaving and all this stuff, all these artisans that have these spectacular items that they make by hand. And he said, 
I'd like you to bring that blanket up to this craft fair and throw it up on a, a, a wooden bench that this Amish team had built. Right. And I did that five years ago. Um, I sold that blanket plus two more. Wow. And now I have this little cottage industry of home accessories that I make. And I do really, really well with this little side hustle that I call it. But it was one that I've had since I was 10 that mm -hmm. is a, a craft and an art form that just comes out of my hands that, you know, it has a huge history with men going back to Viking times and sailors and men that were at sea who had to tie ropes right. and sweaters and garments. So it has a, a huge history with men, but uh, somewhere along the way, women hijacked the, the art <laughs> of it. And then yeah. grandmas really hijacked and cornered right, the right. Yeah. But there's a big wave of men coming out now who are knitting and crafting. Yep. And uh, you, you're hearing probably a lot about it now in the media. Yep. Yep. In fact, one of my clients, um, one of my very youngest clients who I worked with, it's probably been three, four years ago, um, worked with him coming into loving himself, being himself as a gay man. And um, then suddenly one day he came to his session because we were working face to face because I had an office when I was working with him. And he had this bag and it was just full of yarn and all this sort of stuff. I'm like, oh, what you doing? You taking something to your mom? He goes, no. I'm like, okay. He goes, oh, no, I crochet. I'm like, oh, okay. We'd never taught, it'd never come up. I mean, there wasn't really any reason for it to come up. Right. But what was so beautiful about the conversation was he said, not long after I started working with you, I realized I really wanted to do this. And again, it kind of tied back to some stuff that he'd done as a younger man. Mm -hmm. And he started realizing that this was just another way of him expressing truly who he was. Right. And it helped him in those moments when he has stress, when he was unsure about where he was going with his life, whether he'd ever find love, all the, you know, all the stuff that most anybody does, but especially gay men, yeah. we, we face this stuff all the time where it's like, Oh, we're never going to get this and all that sort of stuff. And he was the first person in the quote male persuasion. I'm sure there were others that I knew about, but it just, it really stuck in my head. And then you know how sometimes once you see one thing, then you start to notice it everywhere else. And um, then you came along and it was a few, few people later. I'm like, okay, this is really interesting. And you're right. It is becoming more and more. And I love how you use the word craft because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's a craft just like anything else. And I find it so interesting with men not all men, but I'm going to kind of do the generalization here that there are certain things that men do that a lot of other men just can't get past that. This isn't what a man would do, but yet there was the moment in time when men were starting to become more in the chef arena and men were starting to become more in the artistic arenas. And then men were starting and it's like, suddenly wait, it's okay and it's acceptable that guys are men, you know, men are chefs and men are nurses, but then you get these little things and it's just a matter of time, you mm -hmm. know, before we continue to break down these molds. And that's part of what this podcast is about, is about breaking down these molds of what do we believe masculinity really is and what does it mean to be a man? So, um, What's interesting I, is I was just recently invited to be part of an exhibition, which is going to be in September up in Canada, where a man is breaking down that very thing that you just said about breaking down the masculinity of a craft so that it's not just seen as something that women can do, for example, um, but bringing in um, 
he's having a bunch of jock straps actually crocheted by men from all over the world and being brought into a Canadian art gallery to show that men not only craft, but they craft something that's of a masculine nature, as wow. masculine a nature as a jockstrap, which is singularly male. Yes, and singularly it's, male. It's just to break down gender role, what genders are, are permitted to do, mm -hmm. uh, where society gives you license to just uh, do something that speaks from your soul right. without shame or, or being bullied or, uh, and that the male, per, the male, uh, I would say, the movement of male crafters and male knitters is kind of getting out in open. We're we're knitting mm -hmm. in public. We're knitting on the subway. We're knitting in the parks, in bars. There's actually a nude men's knitting group up in Harlem. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's like it's taking on a whole variety of different tones. But I just like the fact that we're breaking down um, some norms that have been set up by some uh, mythical mm -hmm. group of people that we don't even know. Right. But John, I know because you, you kind of, I would put you kind of in that pioneer of fitness industry because you were in the eighties when all this was really like, okay, the, the whole aerobics and things, all that was just beginning to grow, but you were in it at a time where it wasn't like <laughs> the first thing that any guy would say, Oh yeah, I'm doing. I mean, we were barely beginning to like acknowledge, okay, you know, there's ballet dancers that are guys, but they've got to be gay. And, and most of them weren't. It was kind of interesting to, you know, go through that. So as you started that industry and been through it, there's had to have been times where you've gone through, but God, you're just not masculine if this is what you do. Have you got any feelings around that now compared to what it was like back then? Because I think it's shifted. I know when I started teaching, even it was, again, it was such a weird thing. I was teaching spin and like, oh yeah, you can do that because that's kind of a guy's thing. I'm like, really? That's kind of bullshit, you know? Yeah. But if I stepped into sub a class for aerobics, immediately people were like, oh, and this was before I was out. So I was like, okay, you know, but immediately it like, it shifted where they're like, well, wait, we thought you were the straight guy who taught this, but now you're, wait, we're confused. I'm like, that's okay. So am I. So, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, you've had to have gone through some of this yourself throughout the years. Well, you know, I want to thank you for calling me a pioneer. And I, I will kind of accept that because I have pioneered a few things and I really take a tremendous amount of pride in that. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, men doing aerobics was still a, seen as a, a form of dance. You'd have two guys in a class of 50. And then when spinning came along, it was predominantly, I would say, 50-50 male-female ratio. Yep because it didn't involve choreography, mm -hmm. it didn't involve coordination. Right. And when you do a, some type of movement-based exercise, if you humiliate a man, if you embarrass him, he will mm -hmm. never come back. Yep. So one of the reasons why I titled my first book, Basic Training, was that it was basic exercise that every man could do. Mm -hmm. My whole approach to aerobics, as well as step training, was do the basics because a guy will be able to do that mm -hmm. and you can make it fun and entertaining. But when you step away from the basics, you're going to lose the male population. You're, right. you're just going to, because men don't want to be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And that's what I learned as uh, even with knitting, for example, um, men, they don't, they want to do things right the first time. Yes. So they can't master something in the, like an hour 
they're gone, they're mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just across the board with sports as well. But um, I like being a pioneer, breaking down certain um, misbeliefs, um, certain things that society set up. I've kind of always, as long as I've been alive, I've been the kid that kind of broke the rules. And for some reason, I was always accepted just for being John Giswold. Uh, and I, I don't know how else not to be. I've just been put in front of people who have always promoted the fact that they liked that kid who who's brave, who had some courage, who was vulnerable, and really kind of went for it without any kind of um, apprehension. Yeah. If I was afraid, if I showed fear in teaching aerobics, teaching step, writing a book when I'm dyslexic, um, designing gyms when I had no license to do so, uh, if I had fear as an obstacle in my way, I found a way to jump over it. I really didn't let it hinder me. So mm-hmm. I've been lucky enough to have people in front of me to let me do it. And I, I think this is a lesson for all guys, everybody, but this is a guy's podcast. So this is why I always come back to all guys to learn from is you can have anything standing in your way, but if you drop the facade and go, this has nothing to do with me being a man and being masculine and I can figure out a way to do this, suddenly you find peace of mind, you let the stress go and you just move through it. And I remember, I remember the first time I decided I was going to teach a spin class and I was going to do all show tunes. And I knew then, right then and there, as soon as I did it, and by then I was out of the closet, but um, I knew as soon as I did it, that there were going to be some guys, you know, that were going to be in class and go, this is bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like kind of hoping and praying like, okay, let this be the night that some of those guys didn't show up. And as soon as I said, so this is going to be a different class. Some of you may not really enjoy it, but I think most of you are going to get a kick out of it. If you allow your inner theater geek, which all of us have them, even if we don't want to admit it, we all have an inner theater geek. And I'm actually going to sing some of these songs along with the song. So this is the first time you're ever going to have the singing instructor doing show tunes with you. <laughs> And one of the guys that was kind of just, he was not the best spin student, but he showed up, he did his thing, kind of a big muscly guy. So of course my own masculinity bullshit showed up like, you're a muscle boy, what are you doing in here? You know, I'm kind of like, you don't, you shouldn't be in here. And he came through, he did it, he went through the whole thing. And he and I rarely ever really had much interaction and hey, how you doing, man? You know, I, I kind of try to butch it up at times. And we get done with class, and I noticed when he came up to like wipe down his bike and get the towel, he was really sweaty. Mm. And I said, you look like you really worked out today. And he goes, that music kept me going the whole time. And go. he goes, you've <laughs> got balls to have done that music. <laughs> and he said, and I enjoyed it so much. And right then and there, it was like, I was eating my own crow. Like, okay, once again, you're learning from your own bullshit, Rick, that don't make the assumptions about someone. And um, that became kind of a signature class. Like every couple of weeks, I'm like, okay, it's a show tunes night, folks. I would love that. (laughs) Yeah. It's so much fun because I do. And then I got known as the singing spin instructor because I started singing to everything. And a few people were like, you must sing, you know, in choirs and professionally. I'm like, nope, I just sing. (laughs) So um, I think this is the beauty of just letting yourself and allowing yourself to go do that thing you do, whether it's knitting on a subway or singing in a spin class to show tunes. You know, I was teaching uh, the slide. You know, I taught, I taught everything. 
I'd buy right, yep, yep. everything. If it had a handle and something on it, I would pull it. Yep. If platform or slippery, I would step on it anyway. Wayne Gretzky came to take my class for about a month while he was in New York. Hmm. His wife brought him to this class. And I walked over to him knowing that Wayne Gretzky was one of the greatest hockey players of all sure, time. Sure, sure. And I kind of apologized for the class. I was like, you know, I said, this might seem really lame to you. Mm-hmm. And we finished the session an hour long and I went over to him and I said, well, did you enjoy it? And he said, you know, man, that was really intense training and you should never apologize for what you're doing. Mm. You know what you're doing and you do it well. Mm. And here it came from like one of the most masculine male forms, male uh, examples as I could possibly give you. The same thing happened with Harry Connick Jr. The same thing has happened with a lot of, but Wayne Gretzky always stood out because he was kind of that. I was afraid in a way I was a bit embarrassed Mm -hmm. and I thought, why am I being embarrassed? He's in my room. Yep. And he kind of turned it around for me and just said, never apologize for what you do well, because you do this really well. And I think that's a sign of a true human being who acknowledges somebody else, who sees the greatness in somebody else and helps them see it for themselves. So, um, exactly. well, John, I've enjoyed this conversation, but before we wrap it up, um, I would love for you to just, you know, we're talking to all, all men here on this podcast, about seven to 800 download this a month at this point. And as far as sticking to what you do and what you love and allowing yourself to be in that space, what would be a piece of advice you'd give these guys regardless of, you know, I just turned 56. So it's like, okay, I'm here now. What's next? But you know, I'm kind of going, Hmm, in just a few years, it's going to be the big six Oh. And then, but I, I'm not letting it like really phase me, but I know there's guys who like, Oh, do I keep doing this? So how do you, or the piece of advice you do for guys to just continue or to go do that thing they say they want to do? What would be your advice for them? Well, you know, it's interesting. You're asking me a question that I asked myself today because I'm turning 60 in two weeks. Mm. And the question I keep asking myself is, am I relevant? Um, and am I visible? And the the person I have to worry the most about uh, or the one that I have to pay the most attention to is myself in myself being visible and not uh, turning myself invisible because of age, because of silver hair, because of a little bit of a limp that I have from exercising for 35 years. Right. And so I would just say to anybody who's really questioning themselves, like I questioned myself today, just as you posed me, Uh, the question just now is uh, if I'm ready, willing, and able every single day, I wake up and I'm grateful to have the day because I'm also sober for 32 years. Mm. I do my best every single day uh, to my own personal standard. And when I lay my head down at night, I'm grateful because I've been successful that day. And I'm really the only person I have to do that for. Because my standard for myself is high. Yeah. My compassion for the, the human race is also very high. And my empathy is for uh, our human race to be good. So mm-hmm. that's what I try to do. And I kind of succeed in it most days. That's awesome. That's a beautiful place to wrap this up, man. So um, thank you for sharing of yourself and being here, John. I so appreciate you, man. I appreciate you asking me. Thank you. That's a wrap for 40 plus. Real men, real talk. 
where size doesn't matter. We drop our bullshit, get over our screwed up fears, make bold moves, and live life without apologies. Don't forget to join us on Facebook at 40 Plus Real Men Real Talk, where the conversations continue.